Welcome to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Green Code. We are a tech startup based down in Cornwall, and it is our mission to reduce food waste in the hospitality and food service sector. In today's wellness episode, we speak to Magella Green, a personal development therapist and motivational interviewer about a range of well-being topics. Next, we speak to Professor Pete King, a student chaplain at Falmouth University, about his review of the very popular book, The Boy, The Mole, Fox and the Horse by Charlie Mackesy. Finally, Angela Groundwater speaks to us about the use of narrative wallpaper and her work alongside charities working with the elderly. First up, here's Magella Green. Hi Magella, welcome to Green Code's podcast on well-being. And thank you for being here. Initially, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you exactly do? Yep, sure. Um, thanks, Colin. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here, actually, because I love what Green Code's doing. So um, I work as a training consultant and therapist and coach and uh, across a whole range of areas, really, everything from uh, working with people who've experienced quite a lot of trauma in their lives to someone who might be wanting to just change their job or or maybe build up a business or various ranges of kind of behavioral or cultural changes and shifts and I'm really interested in working with individuals who are ready to make changes or thinking about making changes and in particular I'm really um, excited at the prospects of working with startups and people who are starting up in the tech industries who want to build in well-being elements into their business from the start, literally, rather than trying to do it as a stick-on plaster at some point when people's well-being is suffering. So that's kind of in a nutshell what I do. What about um, how did it actually come about then? How did what was your journey to get to that point, this point, as it were? I, well, I trained as a social worker um, initially and worked with. Um, mental people with mental health problems and uh, substance misusing um, clients, uh, people who were um, diagnosed with HIV and various levels of comorbidities for a long time. Um, And I became really interested in looking at how to impact more positively on more people. So uh, there's a particular method of working with behavioral change called motivational interviewing which I really love because it's very person-centered and it's very much focused on how do you establish an intrinsic level of motivation for change. And I became a trainer. So I trained in that and uh, yeah, started to work with bigger groups and training uh, professionals in how to work with behavior change and um, became really interested in more around uh, positive psychology um, and uh, a book called Authentic Happiness that a friend recommended to me many years ago uh, led me to doing a master's in applied positive psychology Um, and and also then ultimately meeting people who were working on their own startups and getting it to the stage where they were ready to sell it and working with people through that process has made me really keen and I've also had experience of working with developers to try and create some apps around platonic touch in everyday life and all sorts of things really so I'm interested in how well-being apps 
and wellbeing technology um, can support people, but also how do we create more connectedness in real life, <laughs> especially now at the, uh, under the current pandemic circumstances, the amount of people that are experiencing social deprivation, touch deprivation and the impact on that. Um, so on to um, probably a main question of ours is would be if a person does have a well-being issue what do you recommend that they should do? First of all I suppose acknowledge it don't keep trying to go on and uh, um, plod through things or push through things um, I think those days of pretending and suppressing things it, it, we know it doesn't work it, it's not good for you it's not it, it will impact on you somewhere negatively so just start to take notice at how and when they feel at their best and at their worst um, and talk to people talk to someone about it whether that's a friend or family member or a professional you can always phone the Samaritans and just have a chat or it might be you go to your GP and get a referral or you could find a coach or a therapist online quite easily. Um, I would recommend finding word of mouth recommendations because there's so many out there. Um, it would be good to find someone that someone else has had experience of working with. But noticing when they feel at their best or worst is a key. Um, and notice what's going on when you feel at your worst. And then try and optimize those things that are going on around you that you feel at your best. So if that's going for a walk, brushing your teeth, having a shower, those kind of things, anything that will do to take care of your physical health first, um, because that will enhance your mental, they're all connected, you can't separate it out. Notice whether you're sleeping okay, what's your um, eating like, can you increase your nutrition? Is there a way of managing that throughout the day? Are there any under underlying health issues that you're not aware of that could be impacting on your mental state? So you might have undiagnosed diabetes, which can affect your moods massively. You might have other things that are going on that you're not aware of. So go to your GP and get all your bloods done, speak to them, see if there's any underlying health issues, physical health issues. Um, Simple things like writing down three things that you're going to do the next day. Simple things that you would do anyway, like brush your teeth or have a shower or eat breakfast or something. Write them down the night before, tick them off the next day. If you haven't done them, just have a think about why you haven't done them or what, what, would, what would help you to do them. Any little changes rather than big changes that you can uh, implement and take notice of when you are able to do them. Um, and I'd say follow up to that would be, how do you think one can turn a negative mental state around uh, into something maybe positive or is, is that possible or not? I think first of all, negative mental states are sometimes symptomatic and signals that things aren't right in what our environment is or our relationships or the circumstances so currently it wouldn't be surprising if lots of people are experiencing negative mental states around the world as a result of the pandemic mm. and to not have any wavering would be extremely unusual and um, I would be more concerned with the people who don't experience times during this time 
where they're a bit worried or concerned and their mood is affected by the pandemic. Mm. Um, I think it's recognising the times when the negative mental state is an indicator of things that aren't right for you. Um, and when that negative mental state is actually um, a low mood or a depression, um, you might be experiencing a response to a bereavement or um, a relationship that's not working out so well or work situation that's having a negative effect on you. Yeah. Um, so it depends on what it is really. I yeah. don't think life should be free of negative experiences because uh, it's not a human experience. It's not an animalistic experience. We all animals experiencing fluctuating uh, moods and changing circumstances and are able to respond to that. So being human is more important. Yeah. If your negative state is a condition throughout, then there's an issue. Okay. I'd say uh, maybe a follow-up to that would be uh, how do how do people on the flip side of that, you know, feel happy in life? Then. Mm. So if you're thinking about happiness, we we it's you know it's like often people say, well, if I won the lottery, I'd be really happy. Well, actually, research shows that the majority of lottery winners end up feeling more unhappy post win than they were before so make, make of that what you will yeah. <laughs> i think i'd be delighted <laughs> i'd be really happy to win the lottery or have a share if anyone wants to share it with me um it it's it, so happiness is is about finding some sort of sense of inner contentment um along with you know sufficient comfort in your external environment, a safe, warm home environment um, to live in, enough food to eat. There's a certain level of income that once you get beyond, it actually doesn't increase your happiness. So once your basic needs are taken care of, um, if you're constantly aspiring to have more, you're probably gonna be more unhappy than someone who learns to cope with or manage with um, having sufficient going on enough you know enough toilet roll during the pandemic without yeah. having to store loads up or to which is also interesting because one of the things that i thought was interesting around that was that people went up in arms about the storing of uh, toilet rolls or or rice or pasta and stuff and yet yeah. we live in a world where we have several people who are just hoarding money left right and center and no one says anything. It's an aspiration to hoard money. Uh, whereas basic everyday needs or necessities aren't um, seen as, uh, they're, they're seen as commodities that are what, you know, that you should share and everyone should have a fair share of. I thought that's quite that's, interesting. In that's that's uh, very insightful as well, Magella. Thank you. Um, mm. I'd say, uh, the pandemic is obviously likely to continue for some time in the future. Uh, how do people develop a kind of mental resilience to that and, and also stay motivated as well? Okay, so I suppose the, the, the first thing is to try and look for some positive, hopeful future. Um, you know, look towards the future and think of what you would want how you can adapt in life so maybe it's so for example if the pandemic situations are continuing for the next year or two years 
what are the things you can adjust in your life that will make it more bearable for you and how can you um, adjust your work environment or change your job or find a job if that's the case or return to study or whatever it might be so look towards the future um, but knowing that actually everything is uncertain even prior to the pandemic none of us can predict what's going to happen so um, I'm now going to contradict exactly what I've just said and say also it's really important to be present in the moment so overview you've got this the idea of the future you're not panning towards it as in you're being in the moment but acknowledging that there's possibilities in the future that might be better than what, what is happening for you now um, finding um, some sort of achievable goals for yourself that might be things that you can control um, as long as you're physically well and able to do it walking going for a walk going for a run setting yourself some targets around your physical activities during the day um identifying what your strengths are what are the things that really lift you and enable you to do that the thing about resilience is people who are more resilient have had more adverse life experiences than other people who are less resilient so the people who've been through a lot already are more likely going to be coping with this current situation much better than other people who've had a very smooth transition through life. So it's a bit of a shock to the system for a lot of people. Um, you're really wanting to kick in to, to find ways of learning about yourself and about your circumstances um, during this time that can adapt it's about psychological flexibility, being able to adapt to situations um, and trying to be able to, you know, find ways of making meaning in this moment. Um, and that might be through connection online. It might be doing, you know, participating in uh, online learning that might give you more strings to your bow in terms of finding jobs and stuff. Thank you. Um, how, how, just out of interest, how useful do you feel self-help for people struggling with well-being is in terms of them trying to look to try and help themselves by looking at the internet or something mm -hmm. like that, you know, like to try and help them resolve their well-being? Yeah, I think, um, I, right, this is layered as well because a lot of self-help books sort of have this if you do this, you'll get X result. It's not true, <laughs> but there might be some elements of the self-help books that will work for you. So um, you could read a book that someone has actually had this fantastic experience and I'm not invalidating those experiences at all, but they'll be very specific to that person and that their circumstances, but you'll be able to pull different elements of it um, for you and see what works for you. So I think self-help books on the whole, can be really useful as a, as a simple way of accessing something and online there are quite a lot of self-help tools and there's a lot of things that you can do on your own i mean i would suggest you know reading some nice books like that may not be obviously self-help but do lend themselves to it like the alchemist by paolo coelho or um, the glass bead game or you know different books that kind of open up ideas and notions um i think self-help can be useful thank you
that's that's a really lovely answer as well. Thank you for that. Um, following on for that, a follow up for that would be obviously we're in the digital age, and do you recommend using any digital apps? That uh, do you think they they can be equally as useful for people as well? Do, so, do go on. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah, I think so. I think that um, feedback can be useful for some people. So it's again, it's it's dependent on the individual. Um, things like, I mean, everyone knows Headspace now, but Headspace is a really nice it, it, free, you can do a 10 day free course with them or, and you can keep running through that. So you don't have to subscribe um, to the longer ones, but there's lots of free podcasts and downloadable meditations. And I mean, I use YouTube and listen to meditations all the time by different people. Yeah, I was going to uh, ask you, what do you do? <laughs> Yeah, I use, I use YouTube at night, <laughs> every night, um, and I'll find different ones. So I'm like, oh, hang on, today I want this. What am I looking for? Guided meditation on abundance. That will do for me. Or guided meditation on physical well-being. Um, and I also use my fitness pal, and I also use a Fitbit. So all these things I think are really helpful to uh, uh, monitor your well-being, because it's not a separate mental state is not separate and people try to make it a separate thing from your body well actually you are <laughs> in this life this body <laughs> so it's separating out the mind body and spirit is a nonsense it's all one we're all one and um so i think it's important to to look at the ones the apps that will help you monitor all different elements of life and it could be even just like ideas for oh there was one that i can't remember it as really bad isn't it i can't remember it now but you know you can get ones that will prompt you to gratitude diaries online like little apps that for gratitude they're they're great um i use twitter to do my gratitude practice twitter. Um, <laughs> i tweet um usually every day although for the last few weeks i haven't interesting enough um three things I'm grateful for every day. I call it hashtag uh, gratitude365. I've been doing it for about three years, so it's been longer than 365. Um, and savouring, so savouring apps. Sometimes uh, what I get some of the clients I work with to do and I do myself is that I will walk and I will try and take notice of what's around me and take a picture, a photo of something that I notice sort of random weeds growing in the middle of a concrete space where I just think actually that's a really hopeful, nice image. Um, and just have those as part of the gratitude. It's like these are the things, these things thrive in what you think are terrible circumstances, but yet they thrive. Mm. Um, so apps that help you to take notice, to, to be present and to uh, monitor your physical, emotional states. Things like, um, for women, menstrual cycle apps are really good as well, because then if there's fluctuations in moods, um, they could, they're able to notice if it's to do with their cycle. Um, yeah. yeah, so just noticing things like that, all those apps are really helpful, I think. Well, thank you, Magella. Um, what if people need to talk to someone for support? Would you recommend, what would you recommend they do or not do? I would say don't go to the person who when you speak to them they offer you advice straight away. 
Um, unsolicited advice is not really helpful to a lot of people and if I could offer anyone a, a, an improvement on how to be a better friend is do not give people advice without asking permission first just listen so the people that that will listen to you are important um, if you if you're going to talk to someone I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced this. I certainly have. I can think of times where I've been in a really shitty space and I've gone to the person who makes me feel even worse. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I feel really bad. So I'm going to go and speak to them because I know they're going to make me feel worse. So, you know, just, and it's really hard when you're feeling in a shitty space to recognise that actually don't do that. And yeah. so talking to people that are actually going to listen to you, and even if that means connecting with someone online, um the mind app or the, the the connection through mind i thought looked really interesting i've not seen that so the mind services looked good um side by brand, side. What's the name of that uh, app do you know the exact name it's side by side mind.org oh you mean that one where you where you yeah. just post things online and your thoughts yeah yeah so yeah. there's there's that and also um if you are going to disclose or discuss with someone, um, be kind and gentle with yourself. You know, being vulnerable is um, part of the human experience. And I think for too many years, there's been this emphasis on being strong and strong being viewed as kind of non-emotive. And I think now people are realizing that actually strength is about being able to express all a whole range of what you um what you need and what you experience in life um i want to answer a bit more on that so i'm just checking um also you know if you want to speak to someone professionally again you can go to your gp you can ask for what's a referral to improved access to psychological therapies, IAPT it's called. Generally speaking, they'll offer you six sessions of CBT. So and CBT works great for some things and not so great for others. And, um, but if you're in a position you to make... explain what's not many people... Uh, unless oh, right, okay, it. yeah, sorry. <laughs> Cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, that's the kind of go-to on the NHS. Um, it, and again, it also depends on who the therapist is, to be honest. Some mm. CPT therapists are amazing and some are not so good, just like in all professions. There's yep. uh, people who are good and not so good. Um, and it's finding the people who work well with you. Um, yeah, and there's also, if you look up psycho, um, psychology, psychology Today, it's got yep. a whole... Thing. I'm on there, you can see me, I'm on there as a therapist. <laughs> um, but there's a whole range of people. And, yeah, and groups. There's online groups and other um, places that you can talk. Brilliant. Um, just out of interest though, on the next question, are there certain activities that are good for people to practice to benefit from so that they may feel uh, a better sense of well-being as well. Actually, cold water swimming is superb for your well-being. It's really? Absolutely, even if you got in the sea, 
and dipped in the sea for like five minutes and out again, your mental state will massively improve. Definitely. So the, uh, <clears throat> there's the New Economics Foundation many years ago now did this piece of research that resulted in what's called the five ways to well-being. And um, I think there's another one, six. That, that got added by uh, a mental health service in South London. So it's about connecting, so connecting with others, being part of your community, um, finding ways to establish new or existing, maintain existing friendships and relationships that are positive relationships, not, not the ones that make you feel like crap. <laughs> and then you know, being active, is really important. So, and that's one of the biggest ones currently, I think with people just being at home and some people living in shared houses where they're stuck in their bedroom doing work from home and they're only in, in one room all day and not moving. So actually <laughs> uh, getting up and moving about is really important, even if it's, um, so for example, I've been doing interviews where I'm meant to have 45 minutes in between but sometimes I've got half an hour but what I've started doing is as soon as I've finished the interview put my coat on and walk around the whole blocks <laughs> where I live just like just move just move because you're increasing your risk of DVTs and all sorts of things um, that's deep vein thrombosis for Thank those you. of you who don't understand yeah. um, so actually inactivity is a big killer. So being active is important. Even if you get up and walk to your front door or walk around your room, anything, or get up and set yourself a challenge where you're doing... Um, you are know, you saying that the physical activities are more important than the mental ones as well? I think you have to do, to, you have to do both. There's more though on the mental, you, you know, the things we talked about, already around taking notice and savoring your environment looking for the things look up look into the sky look into nature time in nature is really important even if that nature is you you're growing some plants in your in your bedroom but you know nurture the things around you mm. keeping learning is also a part yeah. of it mm. so learn something new you know whether it's the ukulele or the more random it is and different to what you normally do so if you're an intellectual learner to do something that's practical and not in your head is really good for your brain because you're firing up new neural pathways with that so do something that you just wouldn't normally do. Bake a cake if you've never baked a cake. Do something that you've never done before. Um, just learn something new. Even if it comes out duff, trust me, as someone who bakes regularly, I frequently uh, have duff things as a result of my baking practices. Um, and then there's giving, giving back. So a lot of people know right now there's, um, what are they called? The... The, the local groups that are helping around the pandemic. Oh, the food, the food ones. Mutual food aid. Oh, mutual yeah, aid. the mutual aid groups um, and other things like but just being able to give back. So if you've got a neighbour who's isolated or on their own or uh, and you can go and do shopping for them, do something for someone else without expecting anything back mm. um, and give some of your time. It, it, it's not about giving your money away or anything like that actually sharing a bit of your time with someone even if it's just to say hello for five minutes or bring around a newspaper or something 
is really important or get involved in a community group that's giving back in some way. And then the last part is uh, take care of the planet. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> how well do you think companies are maintaining the well-being of their staff in isolation under these pandemic circumstances as well? I would say not very well. I think um, there was a lot of rushing around and thinking that if you give someone a laptop that's sufficient for them to work from home without actually considering their their right to privacy for example on zoom you know that the, 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 they haven't got the right working circumstances if someone's literally working from their bedroom and that's the space the only space they've got and then they're in meetings day in day out and they're expected to be on camera um uh and they don't have a paid for Zoom account, so they can't put a background up yeah. or whatever it's, yeah. you know, it's really not okay. Um, so I think privacy is really important and the right for that. And also changing work working circumstances so that if someone's meant to work 37 and a half hours, actually part of that working week would have involved a, tra a journey to work. Yeah out at lunchtime or even walking to the loo which is further than next door to their room or whatever all these break times so i would suggest that actually companies that are expecting people to work 37 and a half hours still is is not, is not acceptable i would reduce the working week down to accommodate for the fact that the companies are saving on electricity and all sorts of bills as a result of an internet you know they're not paying for people to internet charges and stuff like that um, and I would absolutely suggest that they incorporate prompts on the intranet or whatever it is or their slack whatever system they use teams that actually prompts people to get up and move every so often or to take a breathing space practice a bit of mindfulness um, during their working day and prompts them to go and eat or sends if it's a big company and they have the capacity to sort of send their teams once a month a takeaway <laughs> or something you know yes. just something that they could have a zoom meeting and it's like okay we're actually trying to have a little social or breakfast or whatever it is in the team meeting we're actually going to have this so whether it's send someone a voucher to support a local business during the pandemic so they can spend that voucher in a local, locally independently owned business rather than a large corporate, those kind of things. So I don't think they're doing that well, is okay. my answer. And I think we're going to feel that um, with people's mental health in the coming months. Thank you. Are you aware of any tests people can take to calculate if their well-being is normal or not? And do you recommend this or, or not recommend this as well? Okay, well, I don't agree with normal. <laughs> what is normal? It's all different for everyone, right? Um, stop trying to fit in boxes, people. Get out of the box. Um, there are lots of ways of measuring well-being. I wouldn't recommend people going and doing it on their own without having someone who's actually trained in interpreting the results of their well-being with them because they may discover that there's things that they haven't recognised in themselves like they may be severely depressed. <laughs> so not, you don't want people to discover that on their own and then not have anyone to talk to. Um, 
so yes there are lots of things that online that you can do um and i think you have to be really careful about using them okay so perhaps people's sense of worth in 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 society could be faltering under these conditions do you have any thoughts on that and advice for people who may have a sense of feeling worthless during the pandemic as well yeah i think um i think i was saying earlier about how um within the first week of the pandemic someone i know said they were bored and i found it amazing to think how you how can you be bored when we're living under the most incredible change mm. we're on the cusp of major global change mm. there's no way that change can't happen now in some way i'm not saying it's going to be positive or change um but that the, we're on the cusp of big changes so that was interesting but i think if you've always defined yourself by your role at work and suddenly your role isn't there anymore that's a really horrible position to be in um especially if you've devoted your life to a, a business or a company or a role and and then that's taken away from you or even the fact that you you might be extrovert and now you're at home on your own and not engaging with people so um i think people's values if they can start to practice and look inwards more rather than looking for external validation of who they are the things that we've talked about connecting be active taking notice keep learning giving back and taking care of the planet are all the things that will give you more um a bigger connection with your everyday world that isn't in the control of someone else because all of those things you can do for yourself without having to engage with a role as such. Thank you, Magella. I do greatly appreciate you coming on our podcast and sharing your advice to us as well. So thank you, Magella, for that. And finally, I just want to say if people would like to contact you for further information or on social media, could you just give us uh, some contact points for them? Sure. Um, Instagram, if you want to see lots of sourdough bread and scones, it's at Motivational Madge. Um, and I have a website that if any techies out there want to help me with, <laughs> it's www.magella, M-A-J-E-L-L-A, green with an E on the end um thank you magella and um and obviously people can reach out to magella for further information so we're going to leave it there and we obviously wish you well as well so thank you magella here to review the boy the mole the fox and the horse by charlie mackesy here's professor pete king hi peter well welcome to our podcast and thank you for coming on to our podcast Hi Pete, there. I know that we, you are going to review the really, really popular book, The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse by Charlie Maxey. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to your insights and also learning more about the book, as probably I'm one of the few people that haven't actually read it yet. So I'm very intrigued to hear more. And also in, in the light of the podcast being all on well-being, we feel this is highly connected to that because we feel that most of the themes in the book respond to that sentiment. So the first question for you, Peter, is can you introduce yourself and why you are reviewing the book as well? 
Uh, okay, I'm Peter King. I was a uh, university lecturer for many years in history, and my last job was at Leicester University. I retired here to Cornwall, where I'm assisting my wife in building a contemplative garden uh, on the edge of the Helford Estuary with many rooms and themes, which are about many of the themes we come across in the book, in fact, uh, kindness, forgiveness, sharing, thinking uh, with each other. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. I retired after a longish career as a historian, and now I'm here enjoying the beauty of the Helford Estuary with my two retrievers. Uh, why am I reviewing the book? Uh, f firstly, and mainly because it moved me so deeply and because so many people who I respect have also been moved by it. It was given to me by a friend of mine called Grace, a lovely name that suits her very well. Um, and I have another friend I had coffee with yesterday who's given away 40 copies so far, uh, particularly to troubled teenagers who he works with. So this is fascinating, if you like. What is it? And when you start to read the book, just in the very uh, beginning, it drew me in uh, with statements like this. Nothing beats kindness. It sits quietly beyond all things. I love that because I, I'm a great fan of kindness. See, see the previous podcast. But the quietly sits beyond all things invited me to something much deeper, which I think the book gradually takes us into. So I was drawn by all the different sayings and wanted to, to um, try and understand a book that's really just almost like a collection of wisdom literature. Um, it's a little bit like, like the book of Proverbs in the Bible, you know, one after another, but there is within it a pattern and um, a set of, of deeper meanings and juxtapositions. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Peter, can you give us a small introduction of the book's story and narrative, just so that even that without kind of spoiling, well, I don't want to spoil it for others, but just so that people understand what we're trying to review as well. The only core narrative in the book is how the four characters meet. Uh, after that, it's actually a being together book, which doesn't necessarily, I thought at first that it had deep in it a journey they were taking but actually the journey is deepening of the friendship and of understanding but there is a narrative and that is basically how they meet so the boy starts off alone and meets the mole the mole uh, they become friends they 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 um hang out together then they meet the fox the fox is trapped in um a trap which will eventually kill him but when he meets the mole he says if you let me out of this trap i'll kill you because I'm a fox and you're a mole. The, the mole chews through the, uh, the thing that's trapped the fox and frees him anyway, risks it. And the, the fox quietly loves him for it. He actually is a lovely picture. Many of, much of this book is about pictures, not words, where the fox draws a heart out of um, leaves on the ground below the tree where Mole uh, is sitting. So then later on, Fox saves Mole when he falls in the river. And then halfway through the book, so they then chill out, the three of them, and halfway through the book, they're joined by a huge horse who completely dwarfs the other characters in terms of the pictures, but who is incredibly gentle and very wise. And really then it's their 
being together, talking. They spend a lot of time looking out into the wild. So you imagine a landscape of just trees, hills, uh, grass. They're looking out there and as a symbolic, the wild represents the beauty and the fearfulness of life. They're looking out on the wild there. They're looking at life uh, together. So that's kind of, that is the story. There isn't a deep narrative. You don't go, there's no crisis. There's no denouement really. It's about the growth of a friendship uh, and what that means. Thank you, Peter. Um, how important do you think the characters bond and friendships are then in the book? Yeah, I think this, the central theme of the, the whole book is friendship. And it's about openness, that friendship is based, the deeper the friendship will, the friendship will go deeper and deeper as they're more and more open with each other. It's about encouragement, it's about acceptance. The boy says, but you know me now, surely you don't still love me. And they just say, we love you all the more. There's a, a deep acceptance, a quiet listening. I love the pictures of them sitting together, all huddled together, looking out at the wild, very quiet. It's not a book of action. Um, it's a book about a quiet listening, a contemplative uh, element, if you like. It fits in well with a lot of the mindfulness things that we have been thinking about over the last few years in our culture. So that friendship is central, um, community over individuality. We'll come back to that later, maybe. Yeah, that, that's what it's about. What do you uh, so we don't know about tomorrow. All we need to know is that we love each other. That's a typical quote. Uh, we don't need to know about tomorrow. We, all we need to know is that we love each other. Um, and obviously, what do you think we can learn about the relationships between them then? Um, the central thing is that love and kindness so, um, create the ability and openness, create the ability to share. And what happens when you share at that deeper level is that you find a home for each other. You create a home. There's quite a lot about home in the book. Um, it's about, uh, I don't think I can find the quote. Sometimes I feel lost, the boy says, but we love you and love brings you home. So the core really is that through openness, acceptance, encouragement, all of them based on kindness and commitment to one another in love, uh, they create this space, which is a home. And this is a theme that I've, worked on and thought about um, quite a lot. There's a book uh, by Paul Tournier, a psychologist, French psychologist, called A Place for You, where he argues that each of us can only really be adventurers. We can only live life fully when we first have been in a home, which he defines simply in just the way this book does, as a place where you are deeply and completely accepted for who you are. If you have that home in your heart, you can go anywhere because the home goes with you. If you don't have that heart, you're always struggling uh, not to feel insecure, threatened. You certainly can't be an adventurer. 
So they provide for each other a home, which is a place to be where they know they're accepted and loved as who they are. That's the core of it, if you like. That's really lovely. Thank you, Pete. Um, do you think it feels random, the different characters that Charlie outlined in the sense that he chose a horse? It seems quite random, the titles, doesn't it? Like the horse, the mole, the fox. It looks like someone just <laughs> thought of the first things that came into their head. Or do you think there's more to it than that? Do you think he chose them quite carefully or something? It'd be interesting to know because this developed apparently on Instagram. He put a few drawings up, people reacted. He put a few more on. The book itself developed as a conversation, which given that it's about conversation and friendship is, is really interesting. The process reflects, reflects that. I think at first I thought, right, I'm going to write down what each of the characters says and work out what each of them means. I then realized that there are certain characteristics, but that the mole and the horse, for instance, come up with a lot of wisdom. And eventually the boy does too. Uh, the fox is very silent. So basically the boy represents kind of the inquisitive, childlike questions that are actually very deep. You know, children sometimes are much deeper questions than adults because as the book again says, they stay curious. There's a lovely uh, whole page on just stay curious. Uh, the mole, he's a funny bit of a borrowing from Winnie the Pooh. He loves cake. Uh, you know, it's a kind of the genre of that it comes out of, I guess. Uh, but at the same time, he has this quiet ability to draw together friendship. And he is very sacrificial in his relationship with uh, the fox. So that represented one of the few really dynamic moments when he frees the fox and the fox in return doesn't kill him, but becomes his friend. And I think the, the, the fox represents someone hurt by life who's very quiet. He doesn't say hardly anything. Almost like Asperger's people I meet in the chaplaincy who don't say very much, but love being with other people and need that. And the lovely thing, there's a lovely moment when the boy whispers to the horse, the fox never says anything. Mm -hmm. And the horse says, no, but we love him being here with us anyway. Uh, it's a lovely acceptance, which I think many people who suffer on the spectrum uh, would love to have too. Just that sense that it doesn't matter if I'm not able to join in the conversation. I'm just loved and accepted and they want me to be here, even though I don't contribute very much. I think it's a lovely part of the way that implicit in the whole narrative is the deep acceptance of difference. And I think that's what the four characters are about, partly. The boy, the tiny mole, the, the very mobile and strong fox, the huge, huge horse, they all, it's like about accepting all the different kinds of people in a way. They, maybe they symbolize ex acceptance of very different kinds of people. Um, uh, the drawings are difficult to describe, but it's so beautiful. The way they hold together uh, in their relationship, in their um, you need to buy the book for the drawings, really. I can't describe them properly. Do you feel the sentiments written in the book are connected as well, or do, you, do they feel disjointed to you? At first, you think, well, there are themes, but it's a bit disjointed. But I came to the conclusion that there is a, a core juxtaposition in the book, which is actually, I've just expressed in that, using that Paul Tournier analogy. It is on the one hand, the wild and slightly frightening nature of life. 
Um, it is beautiful, but it's also deeply challenging and dead scary. And the other is that with mutual support, friendship, acceptance, when you have a home, you can live those difficulties. So they survive a storm together and it brings them together. Um, the, there's this sense that the, ju the core juxtaposition is between life is difficult, uh, but you're loved. In fact, it's one of the thing, one of the sayings, life is really difficult, but we know we're loved. So in a way, companionship, openness, and community, as opposed to individuality, are the journey that is suggested as our way of making our way through life. That's the core set of ideas, I think. And they are, therefore, it's not just random things like, um, what is success to love? which I love, by the way, it's a lovely um, definition of success to love. Um, um, and you can take all these individual bits, but at the core of that commitment to love is the ability to create community, which in turn, and friendship, which in turn enables us to deal with rough stuff in life. Uh, I think that's the core connection uh, within the different parts of the book. Um, yeah, we, we don't know about tomorrow. What we need to know is that we love each other it is a typical statement of that juxtaposition, if you like. Thank uh, you. What do you think, how important do you think in the book is that sense of belonging in, in the story as well? There's, it's the central thing that you watch grow. Um, it's, it end, the book ends with them together, just saying, we're still here together, journeying on. Um, do you think that's look how far we have to go, says the boy. Yes, says the horse, but look how far we've come. Note the we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the journey, the we is the central thing. Um, the encouragement uh, and the, just the ability to be together in the storm, if you like. It's, uh, that's symbolized by the storm, storm sequence in, in the pictures as well. Um, yeah, I love, I love that. Uh, the fact that time and time again, the boy, the boy will say things like, well, you, re you really know me. Do you still love me? So the journey into openness. That one of the, the other themes, I think we're going to come on in a moment to what are the other themes um, that uh, come out in the story. And one of them is this admitting of weakness. Uh, the ability to say, one of the characters says, what's the most important thing you can say in life? Or something like that. And the answer is help. To know to be able to say when you need help. Um, to be able to admit, to let the tears flow. Tears are not, are not something to be scared of, but something uh, to welcome. All the stuff really that I think so many of my uh, male friends particularly are so bad at. We are really appallingly bad at admitting our, our vulnerability, our weakness, uh, and so on. I had a group of friends, six of us used to meet once every month or two to watch international football together in a friend's lounge. They're lovely guys who I got to know very well, uh, but only one of them ever mentioned, although I knew they were going through, often one went through a divorce, all sorts of emotions. None of them ever shared any of that stuff. And so our journey never got 
to be like this journey is because somehow or other, particularly men, I think, are encased in the idea that you mustn't admit to weakness and that it is a weakness to admit weakness. And what they're saying, what Charlie Max is saying here is it's a strength to admit weakness. It's actually very courageous to admit weakness and it's also the journey forwards. Um, so it's kind of uh, counter that macho male intuitiveness that we grow up with. It's the exact opposite. I think it's one of the main sub-themes of the book, actually, is ask for help if you need it and be prepared to be open. Um, Thank you. I was just going to ask you what other themes are touched upon in the story that we haven't already expressed in the interview. Yeah, I think that um, is one of them. Another one is simply, as one line just says, stay curious. And um, I think somehow the boy who represents a childlikeness, but not a childishness, um, reminds us that we often as adults lose those characteristics that make children um, so much more dynamic in their lives and so attractive. And that the main one of that is probably remaining curious. Don't, you know, don't, you know when a child approaches a landscape, they, they, they're curious about everything. We seem to cut that off. We, oh no, only that's important. We only can focus on this. We get, we're driving on so fast that we don't see um, what the things were actually around us or the things we're looking at. We don't ask questions. These four characters are all asking questions, trying to understand the, the depth in their existence and not just run forward um, they don't, they, they, that deep curiousness is a lovely characteristic. Another one is look after the planet. Uh, there's a lovely picture of them, the, of all of them looking out on a shooting star, a night star, with this incredible sense of wonder. And it just says, look at all the, something like, look at all the wonder that we have to look after. So that's kind of implicit there. And I think a sense of wonder is another thing that comes out in their relationship with the wild. Uh, with the storm, uh, a sense of their relationship to landscape, and it deep, deeply draws one to a sense of wonder. Um, and the other one I think we've already talked about is openness. Uh, that's a key thing in everything they do. But I, um, I think I probably... Um, want to argue though that uh, there is a deeper agenda to the book and I think you're going to ask me I think about um, my feelings about the book and maybe we could I could try and unfold my, my deep feeling about the book is that it is not only some wonderful juxtaposition of the difficulty of life and the need for friendship but it also goes a, a, a lot deeper than that but you have to dig it out um, underneath it is a deep underneath that is a deep critique of the way we live now. And uh, I think that's, that's perhaps the most interesting. So hidden away uh, in a page in the book is one statement. I wonder if there's a school of unlearning, the boy asks. And actually, when you look at what the book is saying, it's telling us to unlearn virtually everything that we learn from our culture today. Um, Success, then, is defined in the book as, as to love. Uh, it's not about 
uh, earning career or whatever. It's about learning to love. The core goal of, of life is not making money, uh, getting celebrity or whatever. The core is an inclination to kindness, learning. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be kind is the classic statement. So an inclination to kindness and a capacity to love. And by love, we love, love in our culture has a, a, a very low definition. It's something to do with feeling something for someone. I like C.S. Lewis's definition of love. To love is to want the best for someone and to do whatever's in our power to help them achieve that best. It's not about a feeling. It's about an inclination, essentially, to a deep kindness to the person, to want them to fulfill their goals. Uh, so, okay, if that's our um, uh, success is to love, kindness is our ambition. And uh, these are completely uh, against all the stuff. So I, I had um, a friend of mine, a university lecturer, who I said to her, look, my son... He's not going to university. He's going to do some other stuff. Sorry about the dog barking. Um, the, uh, um, and she said, oh, that's awful. I would be so upset if my son wasn't going to university. Uh, and she was caught on this path that you must have a career. You must have the status of your children going to university. And um, I felt the opposite. I felt what I want my son to grow up to be is a person of kindness a caring person in the world. If he grows up to be a caring person in the world, it doesn't matter if he shovels leaves for a living or if he's a professor of rocket science. It doesn't matter. Um, that's, that's the counter-cultural values that this book represents and which I feel so in tune with, even if I don't always live up to them. Um, and of course, the development of community is exactly the opposite to the individualized culture we inhabit, where we, we have individual rights, we have, uh, we have individualized by social media, we're individualized by the, the economy, by capitalism. Um, so that, that's another core area, if you like. I like the way that um, our sense of entitlement is challenged as well, that we should always have the perfect life. So many people somehow feel we're entitled to something. The greatest illusion, says the mole, is that life should be perfect. Um, and I like the accent on thankfulness. There's a beautiful thing. Um, is your glass half empty or half full, mole says. Um, I'm just thankful that I have a glass at all, the boy replies. Uh, uh, and that thankfulness is another vital part of countercultural our culture of dis individualized discontent here we're being presented with the exact opposite community-based thankfulness and an ability uh, to enjoy what we do have rather than always focus on what we're entitled to um, and the other thing is the socially media thing of comparing yourself to everybody again Mackesy comes up with a quiet critique what do you think is the biggest waste of time asks the boy comparing yourself to others. Uh, and I think that is, uh, if only we could teach that to our kids in relation to social media and whether their image looks as good as everybody else on Facebook or whatever it is. Um, 
And I think, yeah, that's what I love about the book is that it is actually deeply countercultural and represents all the other values um, that go against our obsession with money, career, celebrity, uh, self-image, comparing ourselves, entitlement. Every single one of them is touched by this book. So underneath, there's a school of unlearning. This book is quietly a school of unlearning for much of our cultural heritage and the zeitgeist. Uh, and I absolutely love that. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, lastly, I think my last question would be, there is a certain amount of critique on the book by others who think it's too sickly or too, yeah. too sentimental. How would you, re would you rebuff that in any sense? Or would you... Do you I think, think I'd, rebuff, I'd yeah. rebuff that for two reasons. Firstly... I mean, it's been described as inspirational porn. Um, uh, it's been there's one guy on the, uh, whose critique was, I hate this book so much. I know I'm a dark kind of guy, but the light in it disgusts me. There's a, a naivety about the notion that the thing you should most aim for in life is kindness. It goes against so much of what we're brought up to, um, which is look after number one, essentially. Uh, so that I think some of the reviewers simply couldn't, couldn't cope with that. Others just found it a bit sickly sweet. But when you look at the connection that, that we've made but, uh, of how this journey into friendship provides a home and that home in turn provides a way where you can be fully, fully live and have adventures. I think that's very exciting. And for myself, um, also, there's the final dimension, which is two statements that he makes at the end. Um, uh, summarized in two things. I've realized why we're here, whispered the boy, to love and to be loved. And um, this is the point at which um, I started to dig around Charlie Max's broadcast and discovered that he has uh, a faith in uh, loving God, in Jesus. And it's a very, he's been a, uh, a very ardent atheist. He loved Hitchens. He's He's been a, 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 a very ardent critic of the church, which he rightly describes as a complete disaster almost all the time. But he talks about having um, found this, he had this simple encounter in Africa. He went, he worked for Mandela in Africa, in fact, in, in the 2000s. And he was in Africa in a village for uh, a long time. He got to know them all and they had absolutely nothing. No, hardly enough bread for the day uh, and a lot of disease, HIV. And a, a friend of his there, a woman, her son died. And a week later, he confronted her. He said, I just can't stand it, he said. How can you be so at peace? And she asked him, well, what, what feeds your spirit? What, what is it that gives your spirit uh, and your life meaning? And he stopped and tried to think. He said, well, um, uh, football, uh, making money, um, having sex if I can get any. And then he kind of trailed away. He couldn't give her a deep answer as to what he was basing his life on. He was see those are the things he was seeking. But they, and eventually when she'd asked him lots of questions and just listened to him, she said, the basis of what you're asking me of my tranquility is that I know I'm loved. And I want to say to you quietly one thing, 
You are loved by God. You are just simply loved. Forget the oughts and ennies and all the other religious rubbish. You are loved. And actually, that is the theme of this book. You could almost say the book is written out of that conversation. Uh, because time and time again, the friends say to each other, okay, it's wild out there, but you're loved. Um, and the other thing that at the very end of the book, along with that, uh, to love and be loved being the aim of life, the horse puts it like this. Always remember that you matter. You're important and you're loved. And you bring to this world things that no one else can. And I think that would be a statement I would want to make to everybody about the creator loving God. You are unique. You're just simply loved and chosen for who you are uh, and you're unique and you have something amazing to contribute and that to me then that was just the most beautiful ending for the book to be able to um and given that um as you know from previous conversation i have uh an addiction to the idea of kindness that's so central to the book as well that i couldn't really um not um love it i guess i uh i think therefore that it is not just sprinkly little nice ideas and the reason it isn't is firstly community really matters and friendship really matters and secondly underneath that there's a deeper core of belief that we individually each person matters and is loved and that is a very deep foundation that i think you only dig out if you really read the book and maybe you have to also listen to some of Marcus's other, uh, other talks. Thank you, Pete. Um, I think one of the quotes that I that you share with me in, you sent me an email and you shared me one of the quotes that I really loved was, uh, "What do you do when your hearts hurt?" And he said, "You we wrap them with friendship, shared tears, and time." That one really got to me. <laughs> yeah, that is so wise. You see, because when I'm working in the chaplaincy, um, it's actually listening and shared time. Uh, and, and it's so, it's so, so important. And we are so bad at it. Even some of my closest friends and, and, and me often not so good at quiet listening, wrapping people in their sense that they're cared for and just listening and giving them time doesn't even have to be saying anything um so important very beautiful i love that one i don't know why i didn't i haven't quoted it um during the interview but thank you for bringing it in because it's it's absolutely gorgeous yeah uh, i mean uh, okay so um i think we'll probably leave it there just to reiterate so what we've been talking about is the book by an author an artist charlie maxi that's m-a-c-k E-S-Y, Charlie with uh, an L-I-E, and the title of the book was The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse, and you can buy it uh, on Amazon. I've just bought a second-hand copy myself on, on <laughs> eBay, <laughs> so I've just bought one because I'm just so touched with the book as well. Um, so you can buy it between... Um, some people are selling the book, their own copies, between about £2 
And then you can buy it on Amazon up to about nearly nine pounds as well. It's published by Penguin. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, just the last point is, uh, Peter, how can you're such a, an amazing speaker? How can other people who want to contact you or maybe who would like to invite you to speak on other subjects? How can they contact you uh, and reach out to you? Can you give us uh, an email? Or yeah, like I'm, uh, I'm not a big social media person. So email is the way to come. Uh, PK180 at le.ac.uk. PK180 at le.ac.uk. I'd love to hear from people. It'd be great. So thank you very much, Peter, for coming on our podcast. And it's Christmas time, so <laughs> Merry Christmas to you. As yeah, well. happy Christmas to you too. Okay, um, and thank you very much. Um, I'll, I'll speak to you again. And that, and that concludes our podcast about the book the, by Charlie Maxey. Last but not least, here's Angela Groundwater. Hi, Angela. Welcome to Zero Waste Co. podcast. Thank you for being with us. Could you, just to start off, could you explain a little bit about your background and who you are? Well, hello, Colin. I am, so yes, I'm Angela Groundwater and I make bespoke narrative wallpaper pieces. Um, my background is animation and then I ended up working in film post-production. And then after I had children, I wanted to get back into making stories and luckily someone asked me to make a wallpaper and I realized that instead of making an animated film, I could make, I could make stories and put them, in the, put them in wallpaper, hide them in patterns. And I just thought that was perfect. Because instead of it taking um, you know, a year to make an animated film, it, it'd take a month to make a, a repeatable tile to put on the walls to live with. How did that, how did the business actually come to fruition? How did it come about? Um, I had a, I knew someone who was an interior designer and she knew that I was an illustrator, you know, animator. And she asked me to make a wallpaper for her. And it just all just straight away went like that. <laughs> but as far as the old people stuff, that was more, that was, that was a longer gestation. How did that come about the connection with uh, old, old people? people. Yeah. Well, uh, alongside, my um, leaving film and got, becoming a mum and, and, and trying to work out what my next step was. Alongside that was a slight obsession I had with the, with, with the older generation. And the older generation, obviously, we all know, is problematic. And I just, I've always felt very sad and, and also scared because that's going to be us one day. So before I made the wallpaper, I spent a year volunteering in a nursing home with my children just trying to work out what the problem, what, what problems I could personally um, attach myself to and, and, and enjoy and to contribute to. Not fix, because that's a huge deal, but just... Anyway, so yeah, I, I um, And what I realised when I was there was that, you know, nursing homes, care homes, old people, they just don't need any more negative press. There's so much negative press about being old that what I thought they needed was some positive... Um, promotion and then you know as I started making wallpaper that was a, that was an idea but as I started making wallpaper I thought well I could somehow 
combine the two. Can you explain how the what you actually do with the old people specifically and how that relates to how you actually get that into a finished piece of artwork okay. as well? Well, early on, I just decided to make wallpapers about old people. Um, but then um, uh, I was challenged by uh, a few charities to sort of do workshops and I, and I, with them, not just get them to make wallpaper patterns, but somehow, you know, because it's wallpapers for me are about narratives, about stories, help, help them to make patterns about their lives. So what I do is I get them to bring in objects, significant objects that they are attached to, and they bring in the objects to sessions and then they'll talk about the objects. And, um, and then, you know, I record those, those conversations about the, these precious objects that meant a lot to them. And then I photograph the objects and then the objects uh, get scanned in or photographed and then printed out onto, you know, pages several times. And then with those flat, flat objects, we make a collage, uh, a pattern out of a col with collage in collage. And so I'll direct them to make this pattern. So out of their significant objects and their stories, they end up with this pattern, repeatable pattern that can then be printed onto a scarf or a cushion or a wallpaper or as upholstery or as a garment, you know, they can do anything. And so they're, they're, they're significant objects that may have been kind of cumbersome or something that was they had in a trunk can now be like, something they can live with. And what kind of effect has it had on the people that you have worked with then? Well, I mean, it, there's so many different levels, good levels to it. Uh, one is just the pattern making process to show them that they can access this creativity, which is, you know, totally doable. And, and then also to, to get them to talk about their significant objects. I mean, I originally wanted to work with people with dementia, but these are people that are much more, um, active society still so they're just older so that, that these memories are more you know accessible for them so really just to, for them to talk as you know talking therapy reminiscence therapy is really great and then also to have them have new objects out of the you know it's 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 fun and 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 there's you know this it's the nostalgia and sentimentality that you can attach to a, a new object after that a new a new like scarf you know they love that so yeah, there's so many layers of it that I that we we all like. Could you give me uh, an example of a m memorable narrative piece of work that you've that's had a big impact on yourself so far? Well, I mean, it, weirdly, it's the stuff I'm doing right now with the um, lockdown. I would say because it's where we are. You know, we're all in lockdown, so we're doing sort of stories. I'm trying to make patterns out of some gents from a charity called Brokels in Hackney, Hackney Brokels and I'm making patterns about their lockdown experience. And that's really memorable because it's about their quiet time in isolation. So it's like isolation multiplied by, you know, where we are, like 10, 100. So it's, it's very challenging and, and very lovely. And it's, I feel very present when I do the work with them. So I'm, I'm enjoying this. Because we're in a very different moment right now. So it's, it's, it's not just stories. It's like we're in uncharted water. So it's, it's interesting trying to digest it like this. So, and also what have been uh, the negative, positive aspects of working with other collaborative commercial businesses on existing and future projects as well? So with these projects, it's not been really any commercial businesses because it's all sort of charitable. So it's hard to think about that. 
But um, I guess um, often, you know, I make bespoke wallpaper for businesses and, oh, my God, they've, I've had, like, one I can't even name. And every time we went back to the um, drawing board, there was a new set of people that were in charge with new ideas that contradicted the last idea. I stayed sane, you know, not, you know, this is work, so I was fine. But um, the end result was terrible. And what has surprised you so far in working in this area of work with our old people as well? To be honest, I'm less patient than I thought I was. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you might want to do the right thing, but you still are human and frustrated. It's, you know, you can give a lot and, and not get much in return. But, you know, I think you just have to just keep like on that trajectory. Do you know what I mean? It's like you go and work with groups that need need your you feel like doing the right thing but it's still really hard and also do you feel that there's a sense of uh well-being that fits into what you're doing as well well i mean it's mental health well-being what happens is people firstly they retire which is fine because they might might have their health and they they can do stuff but then they end up just sitting around waiting for death and that's a huge problem. So I, I think what we need to do, not only are they isolated and segregated from society, so they're chucked out, but they're actually just sitting around staring at walls waiting for death. I mean, you know, we need to give them stuff to do. And I, I, absolutely, I think it's, you know, this is very small, but, you know, just giving them stuff to do that is about their lives and their stories. They're reminiscing. The other great thing about it, sometimes well, what we'll do is we'll make the wallpaper, we'll make the pattern. And then we'll have a party afterwards. People do these exercises with the elderly and they don't give them the opportunity to celebrate their, their, their work. I mean, everyone else does. So they have a party and they invite their friends and they put lipstick on, they drink champagne and they say, look what I did. You know, just, there's so much well-being, but you've got to take them through all the things that everyone else deserves. That is a project, you know, to do with purpose, um, something to occupy their minds and their time. And then a celebration, something for their, their egos, so that they feel lifted and, and loved. I, totally well-being. I mean, that's what it's all about, that, this. It is about well-being. On the projects of giving them a sense of well-being as well, then. Well, but they're proud of their work, so that's a good thing. They love their object, you know, their new object. The object that's a part of all their, you know, it's a very special thing that they can have. And also, they just love to party. I mean, these are, these are not people in nursing homes or care homes, but they still are very isolated. And a lot of them are carers, so they spend their time looking after someone who's disabled or sick, you know, and then no one ever throws a party for them. Tell us about what you're planning to do maybe in the future with this kind of project, how you see it might develop. Um, so at the moment, I'm sort of talking about exhibition with the patterns going into more things than just wallpapers that is just that's the thing about lockdown but the other thing i i'm doing is trying to turn it into something where we can actually sell the products to make money to go back into uh creating more sessions more activities but do you feel um is it the case that you've got is it is there a business commercial business aspect to what you're doing as well then yeah no i hope so i mean it would be like a not-for-profit thing where I, we make the products um, out of patterns from, from the sessions with the elderly people and then the profits go back into more sessions. But it definitely is a business, but, you know, it's, it's more like a not-for-profit profit share thing I'm, I'm looking forward to. And how long have you actually been in this area as well? How long have you been doing that for? Elderly was in 2012. I have the children, draw, 
and, and, and figure out how I could contribute into this third sector. Have you ever seen any glimpses of light in the sense of how, you know, how in general our, our communities are responding to working with older people? Or do you think nothing's really changed in that time as well? No, I think loads has changed. Yeah, people, we all know this is our future. Everyone knows. It's just um, you, you, you need to have, um, there needs to be like a train or, or something that people can get on. You know, it's not something that um, everyone knows, but you just don't know what to do. You need to give them, facilitate them, fac- provide them with the, the, the thing to do to help so they know what to do to help because everyone's just kind of dumbfounded. They hate it and they don't know what else to do. So you need people to provide them with ways to engage. Do you think, yeah, but, and, and you said, are you saying it's become better since you started? Yeah. Yeah, because when I first put my wallpaper that was with all these gorgeous old men on it, you know, I was in my own echo chamber of like really loving them and, and, and all these other people coming past and going, what? But it's just, I don't get, I don't get that response anymore. You think it's a better positive response that you are getting think, from most people? But I might have a, I might be slightly swayed by a positive outlook. I believe even though the world is a bit crap, I think we're all growing up slowly. <laughs> okay, and finally, um, how can people uh, kind of get in touch with you? Could you give us your details, Angela? Okay, so Angela-Groundwater. Oh, that's your com. website. Angela-Groundwater.com. Okay. And what about social media as well? So it's Ange- it's all one word on Instagram. It's Angela Groundwater. Groundwater is like ground and water. Um, and also, well, um, this podcast is going out at Christmas. Do you want to give any some messages that you think you, you could pass on to anyone who's listened to this that might be pertinent? Oh, do you know what? It's so hard at the moment because um, I'm worried we're going to be in lockdown by Christmas, like still. And I would say, you know, what I've been meaning to do, you know, go and like, you know, there are services where you can actually, you can adopt a granny. I think they're really good services, but I don't know what happens in lockdown. I mean, it's just really the isolation for a load of elderly people that are going to be alone at Christmas because they can't access services or whatever is just my mind I don't know what I'm sorry I don't know what to do because it's just this all new sort of landscape about how to help people the good thing is some charities like Hackney um carers and and the brokers uh, are actually helping these elderly people get onto zoom you know oh really yeah which is really brilliant and so that's all we can do so I guess if you know someone old help them get on the internet yeah is if they are stuck inside or they've got to isolate, it's the only way they're going to have, you know, any access to people. Okay, that Angela, I'm going to leave it there. And I, I'm, obviously we wish you further success in your work. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you for listening to the Zero Waste Code podcast, brought to you by Greencode. If you'd like to find out more about us, then head to greencode.net, where you'll find all of our social medias and can sign up to our newsletter. See you in the next episode in 2020.